Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is not a drill. This is not a drill. General quarters. General quarters. All hands on your bottom station. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host, the ever-genial Eagle One of Eagle Speak. As a reminder for those of us who are joining us live, make sure and join the chat room down at the bottom of the show page with the usual suspects. That's a great place if you have some observations as the show goes forward. Or if there's a question you think that we ought to be asking our guests that we're not quite doing, that's a great place to put it in. Eagle One will be riding her today on the uh, chat room, so we'll see you over there. And if you're new to Midraps or you want to just catch up on some shows you might have missed down the road, you can always get the full archive over at the show page at Blog Talk Radio. And something I like to mention every few shows is occasionally we will go a little longer than an hour. If you're with us live, the audio will end in an hour, but it continues to record, and usually we'll want to get uh, one more question in or just want to let our uh, guest go ahead and finish his points. You can catch that after show portion over on the archive right after the show is done. And just a little bit of a host note, uh, occasionally I've been accused of phoning it in, well, uh, yes, today I am actually phoning it in. Uh, so if the connection seems a little uh, a little rough, maybe echoey, that's because I'm on the interstate. Uh, so it's not on your end. It's all on mine. But Eagle One's uh, got a hard landline going. So if the cell towers fail me, I know he'll uh, pick up the scraps and move forward. But, hey, enough of that. Let's get on with the show. We have two guests today, and both of them are authors of books with in their own certain fashion, have as a central focus important men. For the first half of the hour, we'll have returning guests and uh, regular over in the chat room and amongst other places, good friend to us all here, Lieutenant Commander B.J. Armstrong, United States Navy, and he's on to discuss his book, 21st Century Mahan, Sound Military Conclusions for the Modern Era. For the second half of the show, our guest will be author and journalist Stephen Roderick to discuss his book, The Magical Stranger, A Son's Journey into His Father's Life. So let's get moving on. For those that don't know B.J. too well, uh, B.J. is a naval aviator and an occasional naval historian. His articles have appeared in numerous journals, including the Naval Institute's Proceedings in Naval History, Naval War College Review, and Infinity Journal, just to name a few. He's a research student with the Department of War Study at King's College, University of London, and he was recently named the 
2013 and 14 Morrison Scholar by Naval History and Heritage Command, and he was also awarded the 2013 Navy League Alfred Thayer the Hand Award, which is pretty good because that's the subject of his book. BJ, welcome back to Midrepts. Guys, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be aboard today. Hey, great. And I'm just going to wax your apple here a little bit, BJ. For the listeners, if you haven't already gotten BJ's book, whether you've gotten the electronic copy or you've got one on Dead Tree, uh, anybody with a maritime interest, you really owe it to yourself uh, to get the book, to get a view on um, a man most people think they know about, but they really don't know much about his fully fleshed ideas. And hopefully we'll tickle enough on uh, some of the central points of the books today uh, that will help motivate you to get out there. And, BJ, it's just kind of a, a scene setter, especially for some of our uh, newer listeners or, or those that aren't quite as soaked in the maritime tradition as others. Uh, in the general audience, when you mention Alfred Thayer Mahan, a lot of people just simply don't know him or they just heard the name. But there are a larger body of people who – they do know of him vaguely, but they'll dismiss him as just, you know, as he's a century ago, he's a big battleship-centric thinker. Where does that idea come from, and why is that really not accurate about old Alfred Derbyhan? A good, good starting question, Sal. The, Alfred Derbyhan was, was, for lack of a better description, the the Tom Friedman and Thomas Barnett and all the other foreign policy thinkers you can think today rolled up in one at the turn of the 20th century. Um, one of the most important voices in foreign policy, foreign affairs, and, and military affairs in the world, to be honest, not just the United States. But because of the two things that most people are taught about him, which is that he focused on big navies and battleships and that he was interested in a colonialist system, because of those two elements, which are both relatively out of style today, what we really end up with in the 21st century is being taught a caricature of the man and what he really thought. Now, most people who try to study Mahan or start studying Mahan Either they're at war, you know, war college, they're officers at war college, or even at civilian educational institutions. And what are they assigned to read? Well, they're assigned to read his his masterwork, which is the influence of sea power upon history. And specifically, they're told to focus on the the first chapter because it's what lays out his definition of sea power and his discussion of the ocean as the grand maneuver space that allows nations to interact with each other. And this is all very accurate and very true um, and a good thing to teach students, but most people stop there. And that's not necessarily fair to Mahan because he wrote about so much more. So I, I will frequently run into people, even those who teach at some of our war colleges, who will look at me and say, you don't know what you're talking about. Everyone knows Mahan. Everyone reads his book, and because they've read his one book, they know what he's talking about. It's all about the sea as a maneuver space. 
And they're not wrong. They're right. That's 100% accurate. But that's about 30 to 40% of what Mahan wrote about. He wrote over a dozen books, almost 300 articles, hundreds of letters to the editor of the New York Times. Um, obviously, to be able to produce that much material, you've got to be talking about more than battleships and colonies. Uh, so that's the reason, one of the reasons why I, I put this collection of his essays together to try and illuminate those other things that he talked about because that caricature is not false. He did write about those things and he did think that they were important, but it's not nearly the entire picture of the man. Let's talk a little bit about the organization of your book, which... Um... I mean, you you took uh, Mahan's essays, some of Mahan's work, and then you edited and you added introductions, and you you basically got the book into five sections. Uh, let me give a quick skim of those for people who haven't had a chance to look at. It. First one's management. The second one is globalization. Uh, the third one is um, one I can't read my handwriting on. And then leadership, and uh, oh yeah, training. That's what that word was. Uh, leadership, and then history and conventional wisdom. Can you kind of discuss how you chose those categories and, and uh, what prompted the selections that you made for the book? Um, so the way you framed it is, to be honest, kind of backwards. That's how I went about it. Um, well, of course. I didn't, come up with the, I didn't come up with the categories first and then go searching for the material. Instead, I read a lot of Mahan's work his actual writing. Um, because, you know, there's there's a naval historian named Jeffrey Till who teaches at King's College London and teaches out in Singapore. Uh, has written a great primer if anyone's looking for a one book to start studying naval strategy. It's called Sea Power, and it's a, a guidebook for the 21st century. And he wrote in that book, Mahan sometimes suffers from having written more than most people are prepared to read. And that really is very accurate. I, uh, I read historian John Sumita's book, which is relatively short, and it's almost like a bibliography explaining the works that Mahan wrote thematically uh, in, a, in a very short book. And after reading that, I started to discover this idea that there are these other things that Mahan wrote about besides just big blue water fleets and the vast maneuver space, the global commons if you will, which is a, a phrase that he coined uh, in an essay that he wrote. Other people had talked about the highways of the oceans or the common uh, nature of the oceans and how it connects us all, but that, that phrase, global commons, was a, a Mahan phrase. So what I did was I started reading his essays and his books, and anyone who's read his books knows it can be a very tedious process. He was not a particularly good author. He tended to drone on. He even wrote in his own autobiography that he couldn't help himself and felt the need to clarify and qualify every assertion he made. And in doing so, paragraphs would run on for like four pages. It, it can just keep going. And what I discovered was many of the magazine articles that he wrote or the essays that he wrote with the purpose of publishing them in magazines, were much more succinct because he was writing for a generalist audience, not, not specifically naval or military professionals, 
And because he was writing for this generalist audience and he had a word count limit because you can only fit so much in a magazine, he tended to get to the point a little bit better. And so in all this reading, I found five of these essays or articles that I thought were particularly relevant to the things we talk about today in our 21st century discussions of, of naval affairs. And they happen to fall in those, those five categories that you laid out that ended up sort of being the chapters, like you said, management, globalization, training, leadership, and then his use of history. And so that, that's how the framework came about, was I was looking for a way to overcome the issue of relevance that we kind of talked about, that people don't think he's relevant, as well as the issue of readability, because I wanted this book to be something that people would actually consider reading. And if you pick up one of his books and it's 600 pages long in tiny font, that's a very intimidating book to read, and I didn't want it to be something like that. You know, VJ, coming on and when reading the book, when I got to this section, I go, I said to myself, VJ knows I'm going to bring this up because it's something we've talked about um, on the show on a few occasions just as a side note, we've actually had a couple of dedicated shows about the education of the young men and women who are going to be leading our sailors, generally speaking, but also specifically about the Naval Academy. And Anne had a very precise thought about what he believed the proper education for an office, a potential officer should be provided for at the United States Naval Academy. What was his vision of a proper education, and what do you think his thoughts would be on today's Naval Academy, the curriculum it has, and the emphasis that it puts on its midshipmen? Okay, so as we start my answer to this question, I think it's probably the appropriate time to talking uh, issues disclaimer in here and remind everyone that these are my opinions alone and that even though I am a government employee, these do not represent the Department of the Navy. They do not repre represent the Department of Defense or anybody else. They are mine alone, uh, and they don't represent the U.S. Naval Academy, I don't think, uh, as, I, as I give my opinion here on this subject. Mahan, when he wrote the essay that is in Chapter 3, which is actually the very first piece of published work that Mahan ever wrote, he wrote it for an essay contest, the very first essay contest that the U.S. Naval Institute ever had. Uh, they had been founded a few years before and took much of the Institute's inspiration from organizations that were in England and in Europe. And RUSI, or the predecessors to RUSI, had had essay contests for years over in England. They decided they wanted to do the same thing, and so the first subject that they opened an essay contest Naval education. Anything the gunnery department at the Naval Academy at that time. And so when he read the Naval Education Curriculum at the U.S. Naval Academy in the 1870s. The 1870s, remember, are norm in the U.S. Navy. It's for the Civil War to modernize, even though there's not a lot of money for it, it's a substantial thing. 
got much bigger guns, propeller instead of paddle wheel. So you've got a lot of because of this heavily in disciplines. Right? So with that with with that in mind, he he disagreed with it. Can you guys hear me? We're having a little trouble. Uh, you seem to be fading in and out a little bit. I don't know if it's us or you, but uh... it might be me. It might be the phone. We can move around a little bit. So, Mahan, you hear me better over here? Yeah, that's better. So, Mahan was raised the son of a military engineer, but also a son of a military humanist, if you will. His dad taught at West Point and believed in history as the foundation for the teaching at West Point as the academic dean there. So being his father's son, he came to the Naval Academy and he disliked all this engineering that got taught. It was by far the focus, much as it is today. And he believed that the engineering that you get taught in an academic setting is not the kind of engineering that you use aboard ship. Aboard ship, you're worried about running the steam plant. You're not necessarily worried about designing it but people were being taught to design the steam plant at the Naval Academy as students. So his suggestion was to move to a curriculum that focused more on the humanities, more on the study of history, languages, international culture, um, English literature. The idea being that these are the subjects that are going to give you a solid foundation in decision-making, a solid moral foundation, which was an important element for him, and we're going to allow you to make command decisions when things like your checklists or your equations from your science background failed you, which is really what happens in combat. You follow the procedures and you get to a point where the procedures aren't going to work anymore and you have to improvise. You have to do something to be successful. And so that was his belief, was that they needed to change the curriculum, revamp the entire thing, and focus more on history and the humanities, and truly study the military arts as opposed to the civilian engineering. When you uh, took the last chapter, which has to do with a, a hero of the of the uh, Royal Navy, um, you, you take pains to point out, I think in a couple of places in addition to there, that, that Mahan has this reputation of being a, uh, a big battleship uh, guru and, and all that. But you, you go to quite a bit of trouble to point out that that's not really the case. Can you kind of discuss that a little bit? Yeah, the, the caricature, once again, to use that word of Mahan, is that he's the big battleship guy. I mean, he certainly was. You have to remember that when he started writing in the 1870s and 1880s, the U.S. Navy was a mess. It was, the ships were falling apart post-Civil War, and no one was investing any money in them. Um, the U.S. Navy was worst in the world. At that point in history, the Navy of Chile could beat us on the open ocean in a sea battle. Um, 
So you have to remember that that's where he was coming from when he started writing. And so it makes sense that a lot of his focus was this idea that you have to build up a fleet, you have to build battleships. You have to establish that core, that center of what a navy is. Well, people take that starting point for him, and then they extrapolate it to mean that that's all he cared about. But it's not, because if you read his actual work, um, I think you see it both in the last chapter and in the second chapter in, in Considerations Governing the Disposition of Navies, which is the essay in the second chapter. He writes about small ships. He writes about scouts, cruisers, um, the kinds of ships that are, that are around the battle fleet. So today we talk about the battle force. And when we talk about the battle force, a lot of times that means every single ship in the Navy. But Mahan, and that kind of working battle fleet, but Mahan's battle fleet was the battleships that were the center of the fleet, but the Navy was much more than that. It had cruisers, ships that went on, out on independent duties. It had scouts, lots of small ships to do the things that the big ships weren't really built properly for. Lots of the things that go on during peacetime got done by the smaller ships instead of the battleships. Vision. And so the last chapter, the, the chapter which is a, a kind of mini biography of Edward Palou, illustrates that idea that Mahan had about these other types of ships and on these other functions. Because um, Palou was the frigate skipper in the Royal Navy. He was quite possibly one of the greatest frigate skippers ever. Navy. And he rose, eventually became an admiral and did battle fleets. Uh, the commanding admiral that basically ended Barbary piracy by sailing a combined fleet of, um, of British and other European ships and into the harbor at Algiers and spending an afternoon bombarding the hell out of Algiers, just decimating the police. And in the end, getting promises from all of the Barbary states that Barbary piracy was going to end because the royal decided to stamp it out. Um, so he did do these big battle fleet events. Even that one could technically be considered you know, blue water fleet engagement. But the, the biography of Palu is Mahan's way of illustrating the idea that it takes all kinds in a navy. It's not just about battleships. You know, these, the, each paragraph uh, or section, correction, each section of your book, you, you did a good selection in bringing up talk, topics that are very germane today, and one of which that really hit home for me, and I had to chuckle a little bit because I, I could feel his pain from over a century back, is he talks about an inherent conflict inside the Naval Service between what I would call an operational mindset and the administrative mindset. And there's a push and a pull for dominance, and he expresses a concern of what that negative impact of an excessive administrative mindset can have on a Navy. And it almost written reads like he wrote that last week. Outline Mahan's thoughts a bit on that administrative mindset 
and how the challenges he faced really do echo the same ones that we face today. So the, the part you're referring to is from the first chapter, and the essay he wrote is entitled Naval Administration Historically Considered. And his goal in the essay is to look at how navies are organizationally set up. So a lot of the chapter, a lot of the essay, talks about how the U.S. Navy works, how the Royal Navy has worked over the years. And so he puts that all together and makes comparisons. Hello? And Hello? so you guys still there? Hello? Hello, Sal? You go on. You guys still there? Yeah, BJ, we're still here. Sorry, we just seem to have a little bit of a, a crosswire there on uh, the technical side. Please go ahead. No sweat. The, uh, and so he, he looked at, like you said, the function of administration versus the function of what sea officers are meant to do, and that is fight and win battles or fight and win wars or conduct peacetime operations effectively, operational thinking, like you said. And he said that there's this, like you said, a contest or a tug of war between the administrative because the, the need to man, train, and equip, as we say today, a naval force is a very bureaucratic task. There's no way around it. It will be and always has been a very bureaucratic task. And so you have to balance that against the ability of that organization to then go fight. And it's a conflict because the efficiency needed to effectively man, train, and equip, and inexpensively man, train, and equip, generally does not lend itself well to effective war fighting. And so there's a, there's a, a tug of war, like you said, and a balance there between the two. Mahan didn't really judge it. He kind of said, hey, this exists. There's no way around it, which means we have to constantly be conscious of it. And that was his warning to uniformed officers in that essay is that's the, the hazard of staff work. The hazard of staff work is you get your project and you think your project is the most important thing to the Navy because that's what the guy you relieved told you and that's what you're going to tell the guy who relieves you. And you're focused on that and getting that project done, whatever the administrative task is involved. And if you don't take a step back and think about whether or not this helps us fight and win our nation's wars, well, then you're going to have your priorities off. And your boss, if he does the same thing, if he doesn't think about how does this really help us, if it's just about the rice bowl, our priorities are going to get messed up. And we're not going to be able to effectively fight, even if we have an incredibly efficiently run administrative system. Um, and so that's the gist of where he's coming from in, in that essay. I, I'm not really doing justice to any of these subjects. The The... You know, obviously go buy and read the book. But even if not, if you don't want to buy the book and you want to go on Google Books and try and do all the grunt work of searching for them yourself, uh, you can do that as well. That's that's really what I'm interested in is people reading this stuff and thinking about it. Well, PJ, that's a good place to stop and appreciate you coming on the show. What, uh, what, what else you got coming up in the next few days, weeks? Well, so I, I'd like to, since we're, since we're about done here, I'd like to take the minute to thank some folks, 
specifically my editor, Adam Kane, at, at the Naval Institute Press, and his whole team, or the whole team there, Judy and Claire and everybody, uh, they've been fantastic during this whole process and uh, dealing with a first-time author, as they, as they have to do sometimes. I really appreciate all the hard work they've put into this project. Uh, the next thing that I'm going to be doing is in the fall, I'm going to be one of the speakers at the Defense Entrepreneur Forum, which is going to be out at the University of Chicago at the Booth School, their business school. Uh, and that's a, that's a two-day conference with the goal of bringing uh, military and civilians together to talk about innovation and promote collaboration between the two worlds uh, to come up with innovative solutions for some of today's military problems. And so I'll be, uh, I'll be giving a talk there and participating in the, in the conference, and I'm really looking forward to that. If anyone's interested in that, their website is def2013def2013.com. Uh, check it out, and I invite everybody to join us in Chicago. It's going to be a good conference. Excellent, BJ, and thanks a lot, as always, for coming on this time on the other side of the microphone on MidRats. And I just wanted to encourage everybody, again, you know, give BJ's book a spin. And, you know, I'm always a big fan of original sources if you have the time. Uh, go ahead and get the original ones, but if not, BJ uh, mentioned that a lot of uh, Mahan stuff can be kind of a tome. BJ's book is not; it's very approachable. His uh, topics are spot on, and the book is 20th Century Mahan Sound Military Conclusions for the Modern Era. And BJ, look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, guys. Okay. Have a good show. Thanks, you too. Hey, now we're going to go ahead and shift over to our second guest. And our second guest today is Stephen Roderick. Stephen is a contributing writer for New York Times Magazine and is a contributing editor for Men's Journal. He's also written for Rolling Stone, GQ, The New Republic, New York Times Magazine, Men's Journal, and others. And The Magical Stranger is his first book. Before coming a journalist, uh, he worked as a deputy Press Secretary for Senator Alan Dixon. He holds a bachelor and master's in political science from Loyola University of Chicago and a master's in journalism from Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism. Steve, and welcome to Midrest. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, really appreciate you taking time this afternoon to come on board with us. And I wanted to start things off on kind of a, a personal note with your book. I uh, Sure. It's funny that, and this was told to me when I was growing up, that uh, regardless of, of how old you are, if uh, you're always somebody's, you're one of your friends or one of your shipmates' son, once you're a, a naval dependent or a naval brat of somehow, somewhere, that you are always going to be that to those who knew you when you were younger. And there's something sure. special about uh, the Navy family, and uh, that's one thing that really hit home for me as uh, I just retired back in, in 2009, and I have a couple of children of my own uh, who were roughly the same age as, as you and your older sister when your your father's mishap took place. And right. reading that was very nice because you, you have some options, and again, it's, it's a very personal book uh, to, to be able to look at that father figure from the perspective of one of his children and how 
the and you saw this I know when you were um, on cruise and we'll get to some of the topics on that later but I think you've really done a great thing for those who have both served to be able to look at it from the other end of the scope so to speak but also for other family members who have been in similar situations to be able to go okay so it wasn't just me who has felt that and uh, so a little thank you first of all it was a very a very good book well, I really appreciate that. I mean, that that was sort of the goal, the sort of, uh, and we can talk about this a little bit more to give it, you know, the perspective of a son looking up to his father who was a naval officer, but also, you know, through the the part of the book where I follow my dad's old squadron to look at it through the eyes of a father who has to go away and leave his children for six or eight months at a time, and uh, that means a lot to me coming from you that 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 you felt that way about it. And, well, well, thanks. So easy, easy to do. Uh, but let's kind of uh, step back for a second and just kind of set a scene for for those that um, you know haven't had a chance to, to to look at the book or some of the preliminary stuff. But the title, "The Magical Stranger," where did you get that title from? And and towards the end, if you could just flesh out how a professional journalist like yourself, who spent a career with athletes and entertainers, finally reached the point that the second go-around, you decided to dive into something as personal as this book is? Well, it's those are two good questions. I mean, the, the, the title of The Magical Stranger, uh, it started first, uh, a editor of mine uh, nicknamed me The Magical Stranger just because I could go into situations and get other uh, other people to talk to me that other reporters couldn't get talked to me, whether it was charm or, or whatever. I was able to get them to open up and tell me things they didn't tell anybody else. And he said, you know, you're kind of like this magical stranger. You can come into these different situations and get people to talk to you. But to me, my father was always kind of this magical stranger in the sense that, uh, you know, he was killed in a missile out the Kitty Hawk when I was 13. But from, I'd say from 6 or 7 to 13, you know, he was gone uh, 180, 200 days of the year, either on, on cruise or on workups. And to me, he was this magical stranger that he flew, he's jets off carriers and it, it, it was so you know it seemed so heroic and glamorous and you know he went to mass every day and he set this great example but he was also at least in those years largely absent so it, it was hard for me to totally get my arms around him as a human being and of course then after he was killed as often happens, uh, you have a situation where my mother and my grandparents would just say, you know, your your dad was a hero and he, he died flying first country, which is always true. And we'd have models of this plane around our house and pictures of him in his uniform. But as a kid, that really was a hard image to live up to, just as, a, you know, this it, almost like a man up on a statue that you're trying to live up to, not to a real human being. And... One of the great things about the book was, you know, one of the things I found is he was a Naval Academy graduate, but I found a diary that he kept when he was 13 or 14, which is roughly the age I was when he was killed. And it turned out that he was as much of a screw-up when he was that age as I was. He was breaking windows with snowballs, getting yelled at by his paper route manager because he was taking shortcuts. And uh, there never, I think there never was a son who was more happy to learn that his dad at least had moments of being a screw-up <laughs> than I was. Um to your second question of, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd originally um, spent some time on the Kitty Hawk, which was the uh, the carrier my dad was on when he was killed eight or nine years ago uh, and wrote a magazine story about it. And um, 
which was kind of a, I guess you'd say a test run for the book. But after that, I just sort of had this, you know, do I really want to spend two or three years kind of dealing with this material that can be both inspiring, but also for me, like to go through my dad's accident report and stuff like that can be sort of traumatic. And I kind of hemmed and hawed on, hawed on it. And then the Navy uh, kind of forced my hand when they started uh, bringing the Growler in and retiring the Prowler squadron by squadron. And I knew that if I was going to write this book where I followed my dad's old squadron through, you know, a year and a half, seen through the eyes of their CO, if I really wanted to do it right, I wanted to do it while they were still flying Prowlers. So I basically had to get my 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 gear in, in shape in, in 2009. You know, they were about, about ready to go out on their last cruise with the Prowler. And I so I got my I got my decks in a row and started working on it and that's sort of how it all came about. As you uh, I guess a lot of us in our lives have, have as our fathers have passed on have, have gone back and said I you know, I, I wish I'd asked this question or I wish I'd known more about this situation. How much sure do you, do you find that that people connect uh from that aspect with your book who may have nothing to do with the military but who've who've looked uh, you know, find themselves looking back and saying, I wish I'd known this uh, at the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I find that that's sort of across the board that even people whose fathers are still alive, that there's gaps in their life or things they don't know about them that for whatever reason they don't want to talk about, whether it's traumatic military service or just some part of their past that um, I've had people come up to me and like, you know, I, I my dad, you know, he served in Vietnam or something like that and he would never talk about it and I just... I wish he would have talked about it just so I could understand him better. So that that that's really meant a lot to me, the different people. You know, I had a, a guy come up to me in San Diego whose father was um, a Navy guy who was killed in a helo crash when he was 12. And um, he kind of came up, came to see me and had a chart that kind of lined up the similarities to our stories, and they were very similar. But I think it was more just, you know, someone like him coming up to me and saying, like, you sort of put into words what I've always felt inside that there was something about my father I didn't know or I felt a little cheated about not knowing and for me it was a it was a little more difficult in the sense that right before he was killed uh, I was supposed to be meeting him in Hawaii and coming back to San Diego with him on the boat uh, for a tiger cruise and I always regret that I felt you know well I know he lands planes on carriers but how and how does the squadron work and I felt like at least in a 13 year old kid's way I was going to figure some of those things out more on that five or six day trip and unfortunately his accident happened on the cruise a few weeks before that so we never had I never got to have that experience and I always you know had all these questions about I knew what he did for a living but I didn't know what the day-to-day life was like and that was why when I decided to write a book I didn't want to just write about my father I wanted to follow his old squadron and see what their day-to-day life was the boring the heroic the loneliness, the, you know, the, the, the tomfoolery in, po- in ports and all that kind of stuff. And that, I mean, just to be, you know, the, the squadron VAQ-135, the Black Ravens and uh, Commander Hunter Tupperware, uh, they really welcomed me in this family. And I just, um, it, it meant so much to me that, that they just, you know, they, they treated me like one of the guys and I got to see, as much as you could see as a civilian, just like what what it takes to run a squadron on a day-to-day basis. And through that, uh, I got a greater appreciation to the sacrifices that the men and women make in the Navy and the other branches of the military. But also, 
you know, he gave me an idea into what my father was doing all those hours when, even when he was home and he would be away for 12 or 14 hours a day. So that was, it was just a great experience. Now, regular listeners to our show hopefully caught on to something you just mentioned there. There's a a great Easter egg in your book and something I, I knew that, that, that Tupper uh, was involved with your book somehow, but I didn't appreciate um, that there's almost a story within a story there. And Tupper has been a guest on Midraps before. So yeah, have, I've, I've listened to that one. Yep. Yeah, and uh, I've I've enjoyed the correspondence I've had with him, you know, through the years. Uh, he's just just a great guy. But um, if you could take for a minute and explain how Tupper plays into your story about your father and the Prowler crews, and you know, maybe if, if it helps out as well, you know, as a writer of nonfiction, as you began to develop that relationship with with Tupper, and he, he really did give you a lot of access right. um, in, a, in a variety of angles. Did that change the original direction you're going to in your book, and how did that change take place if it did? Well, I always wanted to, you know, it is, it's it's like anything in life, it's, it's a bit of a crapshoot where I knew I wanted to write about my, my father's old squadron and not another VAQ squadron, and yeah, I mean, it was... Um, with Tupper as the as the CEO, is like uh, you know you're playing poker and you're, the first two cards you get down are aces. You know what I mean, there's like you know, there's a lot of great CEOs and there's a lot of you know boring CEOs and uh, CEOs who kind of give you an insight into what it's like. And there would there could have been other CEOs who are like you know what I can't I can't let you into my world because you know I I want to make flag or something like that, but. Uh, I always hoped that, you know, the story would be kind of a parallel story, a parallel story about my father. And uh, it all sort of started with um, my mother, uh, who has not remarried, uh, has these VAQ-135 uh, coffee mugs. And I put a request in to get some new coffee mugs and um, basically found out, and long story short, was that uh, Tupper was taking command on July 2nd, 2009, which was... Uh, two days short of the 30th anniversary of my dad taking command of the squadron. And we sort of just kind of went from there, and that was always the dream. I mean, what what happened and what's in the book was always what I was hoping it would be. I mean, I, I, I feared that if I got a CEO who wasn't that open or that cooperative, I would have to go in a different direction. But I did always want, like I said, to look at what Navy life is like from my perspective, from my mother's perspective, as much as I could from my father's perspective, but also from a CO's perspective in the Navy now. And um, Hunter, Hunter, uh, I I, I can't, I I owe him everything in that book. That book um, wouldn't be one-tenth of what it is if it hadn't been for Tupper. And I, I will be Forever grateful. I mean, he put up with a lot. I mean, you know, when, once uh, once he left the uh, the command of the squadron, he went uh, to be air boss uh, on the on the Lincoln, and I, I flew to Dubai to kind of go over some of the stuff in the book. And uh, you know, he's got four days in port. You know, before he's got to ship back out, and you know, he'd give me five or six hours a day. And um, I, I I see him and a couple of the other men in the squadron that I met as almost like brothers. You know that. That you're supposed to keep a, as a journalist, you're supposed to keep a degree of professional distance. But 
these guys were so great to me that, um, uh, you know, like I said, I saw them as brothers. The one thing I would say, though, is they never never asked me once not to call it like I saw it. You know, what what you read in the book is how it happened. It's not the PG-13 or the sanitized version, and um, that just made me all the more grateful. They, They didn't say, like, okay... We can have you hang around, but don't put that part in where we're doing this nutty thing or I'm having this argument with CAG or something like that. They were right what you see. And uh, as a journalist, that's all you can hope for is people who are willing to say, come into my world and write about what our life is like, the good, the bad, the ridiculous, the absurd, the parts of our life which are heroic and the parts of our life which are more Catch-22 than the actual novel Catch-22 is. So... Uh, I'll always be grateful to him and the other guys in the squadron. One aspect of the book, I, I should warn you that I was a surface warfare officer, and so I, I, my sure. knowledge of aviators <laughs> has has, uh, has been limited, although my older son is a is a pilot. My younger son is currently in flight school. But uh, Oh, wow. Uh, um, I was impressed. I mean, I know these guys partied hard. That was pretty evident to us, uh, Swoes, but uh, I wasn't as uh, as clear on how hard they had to work uh, to maintain the proficiency and how close the line between um, success and some kind of screw-up was. Can you kind of talk about that part of their world? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the there's a good news, bad news thing. Is that I think the good news is, uh, as you probably know, the, the mishap rate in the United States Navy from, I don't know, the stats right in front of me from my dad's era, which is late 70s, he was killed in the end of 79, but let's say late 70s, early 80s to now 30 years later, um, the the mishap rate is way down and the fatality rate is way down. And that is because I think uh, the bad news is that, you know, they fly their planes more carefully. And I sometimes wonder if the Navy has them fly their planes more carefully, not because they're trying to protect the lives of the, of the aviators, but they're trying to protect the assets of these you know, tens of millions of dollars of planes. And, um, yeah, the, the briefing and, you know, the mechanical issues. I mean, one of the, one of the, uh, I made the equation of the, uh, in the story, the metaphor that, uh, you know, Tupper was like a baseball manager taking over a team that in one year is moving into a new stadium. But, you know, he, he's got to get results with the old stadium and the old year. And he was, you know, he was uh, had to lead these guys and do combat missions over to Afghanistan, and they're flying 20, 25-year-old planes. And, yeah, you know, the, the Prowler, unlike the different versions of the Hornet, it's a standalone plane on an aircraft carrier. You can't go to another squadron and scrounge your part or something. So if you if a plane goes down, you know, they have the, you know, the plane of the squadron that doesn't fly very much, the Hangar Queen, you try to get it off that, apart from that thing. But it's much... I mean, just the the logistics to get these planes up in the air and um, proficient uh, was really astounding. And I think that is a change versus, like I said, my father's 25, 30 years ago. Not that my father wasn't a guy who poked his hole in every little hole and checked the plane and everything, but I just think it's more kind of codified and organized in terms of the way um, you look at these planes and make sure that they're okay to fly. Now, the flip side of that, and a lot of the Navy guys would say, is that just like, you know, they feel like a, a, a Pentagon desk monkey. Is like there's so much paperwork now, you know, about 
you know, if it, if this part's down, you know, we get to do this intrepid and get, you know, so-and-so to sign off on it. So I think they chafe at that, you know, the, they, they chafe at the amount of uh, paperwork they need to do. But at the same time, you can't argue with this. You can't, you, you can argue about a part of the way of life that's been lost, but you can't argue with the stats in terms of the accident rates going way, way down. So, so, so these guys, they have to, you know, kind of live on the edge when they're flying, but they all have their, you know, the, the senior guys have their department head jobs, whether it's maintenance or operations or scheduling and stuff like that. And they've got to do that all in conjunction with, you know, maintaining, you know, razor sharp, uh, level of expertise for landing on a carrier in a monsoon or something, uh, you know, coming back from, you know, a mission over Afghanistan. Another kind of uh, sub-thread in your book that I think um, really has some import in a lot of areas, and some people have argued, I know the, the, the term has fallen out of favor, though I actually prefer it, the long war that we've been in, a lot of people define it, the attacks in September 11th, but there are also a lot of people that go, no, actually, this thread really started when the hostages were taken in 1979 in Iran from our embassy, and that's what canceled the Tiger crews for your father's squadron. That's right. And when they headed west, and the the mishap that he and and three of his uh, uh, fellow aviators uh, were lost in the mishap southeast of Diego Garcia through now, a lot of the American public and even service members, we, we've seen not just Navy, people either killed in combat or killed in training or workups or just in the process of doing the mission unrelated, but we've seen a lot of the pictures of the funerals and right. uh, an officer handing a flag off to a young widow or in some cases, one of the most memorable ones I saw was a Marine Corps officer in the course of uh, going to see the, the wife, the son got up. And you were 13 and your father was lost. Right. But this, this, this young man was maybe nine or eight. Uh, right. it, it still it still hits you center mass when I think about it. And yeah. you you were there. You know what it's like. At, you know, 13 is such a critical age for a young man. You know, whether people are in the service, but especially those that may not have which is the vast majority of people in our country, thanks to him anyway, that have no connection to the military. And they just see this picture as if it's set up or out of its mood. But these are real people, real families, who live in a very unique culture and lifestyle. What can they, what do they really need to know about these young widows and these young families who in the blink of an eye have lost their father or lost their daughter. Recently, there was a recent right. Naval Academy graduate. She was lost in a prowler. Um, yes, yeah, a, that, that actually happened on, on the day, yeah on the day my book was closing, and I, you know, I, had, I put a little afterward uh, note into it that it's it yeah. I mean, the, you know, it's a good question. It, 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 the general answer is is give them, you know, help and love. You know, it just I, I think. They are even when you live in a Navy community. You know, I I reconnect with some of my junior high and high school classmates, and they said, you know, the the days that I was not there after my father was killed, the teacher says, "Well, just teach him, treat him like a regular kid, and don't mention the accident." And I know that was done with the the best of intentions, but I think 
it's not the right way to go. I mean, you know, if if you know, I was talking to a school teacher who teaches at a military near a military community, and she was asking me, "He's like, well, what can I do for these dependent kids whose dads are gone?" It's like, don't harp on it, but let them know that you know and that you're watching out for them. You know, it can be just taking a nine-year-old kid aside for five minutes and saying, "Hey, I know your dad's uh, going back to Afghanistan, and." If you ever need to talk or, you know, need a ride home or something, let me know. Don't, you know, you know, kids that age or my age, you know, you, you don't want to be made to look different, but you do want to know that these other people in the community care about you. And it can be done subtly. You know, you, it can be, you know, calling the widow and saying, you know, hey, um, why don't we take your boy on a ski trip with us and give you, give you a break for a couple of days or something. It can be incredibly small things that let people know that that you care and that's that's all people are looking for is for they're not looking for you to throw a parade for my family or any other family they want just want you to know that they that you care about them and um particularly families that are not living on base or living you know they're living you know 20 or 30 miles away from a base or after the person has been you know the the spouse has been killed they've moved to another another state or something They've lost a lot of those ties. Um, if you can just give them the smallest thing that lets them know that you know what they've been through, that you appreciate it, and you're there to help, uh, it's the small things that really matter, in my opinion. As you uh, as you wrote this book, it, it seemed to me that uh, you were working through a lot of stuff. Obviously, how, how cathartic yeah. was was this? And and uh, did you, I mean, having gone through the process of finding out what really happened, or as much as you could of what really happened when your when your uh, father's plane went down, uh, how meaningful is that to you now? Is this does that make the experience much more worthwhile, or 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 where are you with that? Uh, you know, I, there is this like, that kind of feeling, or or the cliche that you're going to go into a book like this and you're going to write it and you're going to solve all your problems and you're going to answer every question you ever had about your father and. Uh, I am so grateful I did it, and I did learn so much about him, and I learned, you know, like, well, just a, a quick my background, you know, my dad's plane, they were doing training missions as they were heading back toward the Gulf for potential attack against, or, 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 you know, Iran or something like that, and they basically only found an oil slick, and as often happens in these mishaps, if they don't find any other, you know, extenuating circumstances, uh, it's ruled as pilot error. And as my father's only son... You know, that was a very heavy weight that I carried. Uh, you know, why I chose to carry it, I couldn't tell you, but I I was like, you know, I couldn't square the fact that here's my dad who graduated in the top 10% at, at the Naval Academy and was a skipper at 36 and seemed to be on the fast track that something he did wrong caused all this tragedy in four families' lives. And... You know, just talking to, uh, you know, people who flew with him and with other people who were on the Kitty Hawk, and the, it, it, there's not there's not a, uh, you know, as they say in the movies, there's not a reveal where it turned out to be this part. Um, it could have still been his fault, but, you know, they were flying without their radar, uh, radar altimeters on, which is, anybody knows anything about aviation, which is most people know more than I do, Um they're more exact, and if you're flying a mission where you're flying 100 feet off the ground or off the ocean, as they were doing, uh, your barometric altimeter um, can be off by 140, 150 feet. So he may have banked into a turn 
thinking he was at 150 feet because that's what his barometric altimeter said. And he could have been at 30 feet, and, you know, that could have uh, been why the wing clipped the ocean. So I, I, didn't, I didn't get, you know, I didn't have that kind of rosebud moment where, where I was like, oh, I can now blame this. It still could have been his fault, but I have a much better understanding of the, the chaotic situation. They were flying without the radar altimeters on because there were Soviet spy ships around, and they thought they might be able to be tracked by those radar altimeters so that there was a lot of extenuating factors and they hadn't flown in nine days because they were kind of trucking over to the Persian Gulf. A lot of factors that as a boy, I didn't know. And I just thought, okay, this was my dad's fault and I have to kind of carry this guilt about it. And, you know, it it wasn't wartime, but, you know, they talk about the haze of war. You know, there is a haze of naval aviation or any kind of military service that's makes these situations not they're not cut and dry and knowing just knowing that meant a lot to me that i'll never know exactly what happened but the possibility that it wasn't my father's fault and it wasn't negligence or anything that he did wrong um it you know it meant a lot and was was an incredibly cathartic experience for me. one thing i want to, to to share with the listeners is uh there are places in the book that, that had me laughing out loud a, a little bit of schadenfreude on my part, like the, you going through swim falls and uh, yeah, making yeah. sure you could get out of the pool and actually get to where you needed to be was good. But also, as I started to step back and was thinking about you know the time that you actually spent with your, your father's old squadron, yeah. um, the time you spent with the JOs, seeing how the ship worked, seeing how the maintainers worked, on the right. aircraft, trying to get these old things, you know, getting through the end of the deployment. That type of, of sitting there, sharing the space, sharing the oxygen, enjoying the, the JOs, if, if you can use that phrase, did yeah. that experience give you some insight into your father that you, you really didn't have before when you said, oh, this is his culture, now I get it? How did that help you, not so much as a professional journalist, but just as a man trying to understand his father, it, it helped a lot. That's a great question, and it helped a lot. I mean, it's you know, I I, mean, I always make the equation of that, you know, as a kid or once I got a little older, I was like, why why didn't he just walk away, you know, when he was lieutenant commander or something and stop flying and spend more time with his family? Well, you spend this time with the squadron, which is a family basically, and you watch not just the flying, but the shenanigans and all the fun they have, you know, even with the with the BS paperwork and stuff like that. And you can imagine, and I talked to a lot of the guys about this, how hard that life would be to walk away from. And the problem, it's like professional athletes in the sense, you can't step away for two or three years. You can't say, okay, my wife's got a little baby. Well, I'm going to step away for two or three years, and then I'm going to get back on this track like you can do in many careers. You step away off the track, maybe you can get in the reserves or something like that, but it, it, you, you do irreparable damage to your career. So I have a, a, a exponential, you know, billion times greater appreciation of what his, that life was like and why he loved it so much and why, as much as he loved his family, he couldn't walk away from it and that it would have been unfair to ask him to walk away from it. It just, you know, he would have been miserable and, you know, one of the few... One of the few cliches that I do kind of buy a little into, you know, he died doing something he loved and, you know, obviously doesn't make up for losing him. But I think if he got out early or taken shore shore duty or something like that, a part of him would have died 
at that point. So I, it just gave me a much greater appreciation of why he did what he did. And, and that, if this book sold zero copies or if I got paid zero dollars for it, um, that's one of the great things about being a journalist. You can actually you know, go out and find these things out and someone will pay you money to do it. And I just felt blessed blessed to have that experience. Well, it's an excellent book. I recommend uh, people uh, buying a copy and, and reading it. Uh, what uh, What's coming up next for you? What have you got uh, down the road? Um, my wife's trying to, and, uh, and you know, and anybody's interested in the book, I have a website, themagicalstranger.com, but my wife is getting trying to get me to take a couple a couple months off and uh, just take it easy. But the one thing I've sort of uh, inherited from my father is kind of uh, workaholic. And I'm, I'm trying, like I'm in Maine right now, trying to take it easy. So but we'll see how that goes for the rest of the summer. Uh, I don't know what I'm gonna, my next big project's going to be, but um, I'm going to try to take it easy. Well, Stephen, do enjoy the rest of the summer. And thank you very much for, for the book. It was more than just a uh, just a pleasant uh, read it. Uh, it really it, it helped me think about a few issues. And I think anybody that either is in the service or has a loved one's in the service really should take a time. And the book is by uh, Stephen Roderick, The Magical Stranger: A Son's Journey into His Father's Life. I wish you the, the best of the luck, Steve. Well, well, thanks a lot. Let me just say real quick that uh, when I was preparing to do this book, I would, uh, you know. Commander Salamander's uh, the blog and uh, listening to Midrats uh, gave me a lot of knowledge. So I, 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 I tip the hat back to you guys too as well. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Thanks a lot. Okay, take and, care. Take care. And thank you very much, everybody, for joining us for a uh, live edition of Midrats. Please join us again next week. Until then, I hope you all have a great Navy day. Cheers. Maloney wants to marry me and so Leave the strand and Piccadilly Or you'll be to blame For love has fairly drove me silly Hoping you're the same It's a long way to Tipperary It's a long way to go It's a long way to Tipperary Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.